Now entering the Bitcoin Podcast Network. Welcome to the Block by Design Podcast, where we explore the power and process behind Design for Web3. We'll guide you through the immense challenges faced in Web3 and how embracing the right design methodologies helped overcome these blockers. I'm Reem. And I'm Akil, and we are your co-hosts. Thanks for joining us for the second episode of the Block by Design Podcast. For my inaugural episode, I'm very excited to have along with me today Sarah Mills, the head of design at Consensus. So for those of you who might not be too aware of what Consensus is, I would personally categorize it as one of the largest experiments and outlays of resources when it comes to venture funding, incubation, and product development in the blockchain space. Sarah, I'm really excited to have you join us today to speak about distributed design in the Web2 ecosystem. Please start off by telling us a little bit about yourself. Hi, thank you for having me. Uh, so I'm Sarah Mills, and I am in North Carolina in the United States. Um, I joined Consensus over two years ago, and before that I was at IBM Blockchain. And I have been uh, trying to support design in the blockchain ecosystem in that time, and I've run into... Uh, a lot of challenges. I've learned a lot and I've made a lot of really good friends. It's a great space to be in with a lot of really fascinating and interesting and kind people. So the great thing about having you on is that we've personally nerded out about various design <laughs> topics about Web3 quite a few times. So I knew that even if we risked going on like endless tangents, we'd be able to salvage some really good takeaways for the <laughs> listeners at the end of the day due to the like the unique perspective and breadth of experience that you have in this space. So I want to start off by getting to know your origin story, what got you into design and how that led you to IBM blockchain and eventually consensus. Sure. Well, I was born in a farm. No, <laughs> I, <laughs> I actually majored in art and found that I wanted to eat. And so I started taking design coursework and got a job uh, back in the dark ages doing uh, scientific publishing. Uh, oh, so wow. making a lot of graphs and uh, book covers and that kind of thing. And it was actually really great because I have a deep, deep appreciation for data visualization because of it. Yeah. Um, so anyway, I just bounced around uh, different types of jobs, you know, eventually, uh, much like the rest of my peer group at the time, got into web and then product design. And then uh, I joined IBM uh, DevOps and designing for developers. And I, I want to say that was maybe the hardest transition I've ever had because it was extremely difficult to even know uh, what questions to ask because it was such a foreign job to be done, if you will. Like for designing sure. for developers was just, it had not occurred to me. Uh, so it was super challenging, but then I realized 
here's a group of people that don't get a ton of design love because it's very hard to understand what they're trying to do to begin with. And it gets very technical and it can be pretty off-putting um, if you get bogged down in it. But I found that it's super rewarding when you do get it right. And then I moved into the blockchain team at IBM and it was a time when we were still not talking about Bitcoin because Bitcoin had kind of a bad image. And so we didn't say those words and we were building on top of Hyperledger, which uh, at the time didn't have a currency component to it. And I thought it was interesting, but the real breakthrough moment for me was when we were doing some incubator work around identity. And I know that identity work has been going on for a long time. Uh, and the blockchain people kind of came into it. Uh, but learning about the problems to be solved in that space. And I care very much about protecting people. I feel like technology has gotten so much faster and so much more dangerous. And that is triple true in the blockchain space. Uh, so making things clear and understandable and safer for people, you know, like my parents, like my, um, my sister, my brother-in-law, my kid, uh, it's very personal to me, but also my friends. And I, I saw the power of what blockchain could be. And that's kind of my moment where I was like, oh, wow, we could have this security and privacy and control over what's ours and and that's where I got hooked so then uh I came over to consensus and it's been a non-stop party <laughs> <laughs> going to IBM blockchain in the first place was there something uh you spoke about like identity really gluing the value add of the technology but was there something else some resources you were reading or some sort of information that kind of led you in that direction in the first place Oh, man, I don't know if I would admit this. Uh, uh, listen, if I am completely honest, because right, I feel like everybody else heard about cryptocurrency or had been nerding out for a while, and they're like, this is fascinating. And I knew exactly zero, but other people were like, this is really cool. This is so hot right now. And I was like, I want to do that. I want to do hot things. <laughs> I want to. I so as designers, involved. I think we're always chasing the next shiny <laughs> object. <laughs> Makes sense. I mean, the, uh, I joke about it, but the, it was an internal job description. It said something about like, do you like ledgers? And I was like, mm, sure. I love ledgers. Um, but I'm glad I did. I, I'm glad my, my nosiness and need for validation paid off because, you know, once I got in here, it's like, oh, I really do like this. So, so you spoke a little bit about the challenges of working in this um, highly developer-focused environment. So was IBM always a traditional organization or did they have a distributed structure as well? Oh, well, so I actually, there's still a lot of people from IBM at Consensus and we talk about this and I just want to stipulate that my visibility into how the design organization at IBM was structured was not as strong. And I've heard several 
different stories. Um, so I'm just going to say what I viewed it as, uh, which is, uh, so IBM, pretty heavy hierarchy, many, 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 many levels. Um, then the design organization, however it was birthed, uh, had a mandate, you know, to make IBM uh, design driven. And I came in, I think, after that had gotten started, but IBM was already, for, from a designer's perspective, IBM design was already very attractive because, you know, they had uh, really nice design language. Uh, when I got there, they were building, at the time, what was called the Blue Mix design system. Now I think it's called Carbon. Uh, and a lot of serious talent and a lot of training and resources. Uh, so the design organization, however it was structured, like wh whoever they were under um, was amazing. I think how they were doing it was you would, if you were a business unit, you, and you were special, like a, like called a hallmark. Yeah. Uh, program, then you would be granted design headcount. So it was a privilege to get a designer. And I think that was that's an interesting strategy, like cre create the scarcity. And also uh, they had, you know, there just weren't enough designers. They were hiring lots and lots and lots. And so they had in Austin and uh, boot camp kind of thing which was also like an incubator where they'd get new grads uh, and early career people and teach them the vocabulary at IBM because I'm still using it and nobody knows what I'm talking about when I talk about like hills and um, no, other people say things like epics or uh, that kind of thing. But so it's a different language and, uh, and the design thinking uh, program was really good. Uh, and so I think some business units were pushing back on that because they wanted to have their own designers okay. under their headcount. And so I don't really know how that was resolved, but it definitely affected the way that I approached things at consensus because it, I saw the damage that, that can happen when a team feels like a person is allocated to them and can be pulled away at any moment. For sure. It, it doesn't really do a lot for trust or managing the resources or just their v version of success. Like either the whole team's in or it's just kind of this loose group of, you know, people that might not be there next week. Uh, and so they're not as invested and it created some, unnecessary politics in my opinion and confusion so it was something i was looking to avoid when i got to consensus so as i mentioned uh, consensus is mostly a decentralized organization with a lot of different projects under its umbrella i've personally had a lot of experience working in decentralized and distributed work environments and it seems to be naturally crossing over to different industries and professions but this actually might be a new concept for many people entering the space or who haven't had the opportunity. So how would you categorize a distributed design team 
what do you think are some of the value adds of working in a distributed nature versus a regular traditional design in-house? Okay, so the difference would be if you, you're on a team, and I'll just use like a startup team as an example, right? So one designer or maybe two tops. Uh, at, at an early stage startup, but you're all co-located. So the benefits, you get to see each other's faces. The amount of miscommunication is not as high because you can hear people's tones and see their expressions all the time. Uh, you might get free snacks, uh, but I'm also going to go on the assumption that you're most likely in San Francisco or New York. Uh, to get the collection of talent that you need, uh, it's it's going to be highly likely that that you're going to have to live in a high cost city. Yeah. Um, and so distributed means, uh, ideally, I'm just the only thing that I have not figured out how to overcome is the time zone thing. Uh, so teams have to kind of agree on what time zone they're going to operate in. Um, but people are... Sorry to cut you oh, off there. Sure. Maybe let's backtrack a little bit about what do you think a distributed design team is and then we'll go ahead and get into like the challenges. Oh, okay. Sure. So there are a couple different models of like design organizations. And I'm, I first modeled a distributed decentralized design team after something that is called a centralized partnership. Um, meaning that designers were the lead designer on their team and they made all decisions at, you know, as far as that nobody was going to come along behind them and check their work or do any kind of managerial things. Right. So yeah. the centralized aspect was only if they needed help, and then quicker access to things that we know that they'd need. So more of a funded community, maybe. Um, and then also, I feel like uh, the centralized aspect of it is my job leading design. The biggest job that I have is making sure that the talent coming in is the best that I can get. Um, and so that is the centralized aspect of what I've been doing. However, the difference also is that with a distributed team, with a decentralized team, they're kind of on their own yeah. um, and have to ask for help when they need it. But I think it is just like many things in blockchain, the responsibilities shift back onto the individual. Um, so an example would be things like burnout, right? If we were all co-located uh, in a you know centralized traditional uh, organizational format, I would be able to see people if they were getting burned out. Um, they would also have an office to physically leave. Uh, so it's really hard uh, to deal with the more, uh, I want to say, emotional or mental aspect of being uh, an effective member of a team. And so 
people have to watch themselves more. They have to take more of the what a manager would be doing for them back on themselves, right? So advocating for themselves, giving themselves permission to stop working, um, prioritizing their work. Like there's nobody there to do that. So it's much like being a freelancer in a, in a way, right? Uh, yeah. But there are a lot of things that are better if we're all banded together, uh, initiatives and things that everybody wants and needs and is cheaper if we get it in bulk, right? <laughs> Something like software um, or things that I can do to make people's lives easier as designers. So what are some key indicators of, let's say, if you're interested in working in a distributed team or from your end, if you're looking to hire individuals, what are some key indicators or some challenges to realize, hey, this is a good fit for me? Mm. So one of the questions that I usually get from developers is like, hey, we don't know anything about design. How do we initially know what a good designer does, what we should be looking for, and how do we know that we're providing them with all the resources and all the mental and like physical needs that they have as far as a good work environment. Would you have any recommendations in that regard? Um, so things that I see work, uh, people, the designers that I see that I, I feel are successful and are, you know, making an impact. There are some personality traits. So, there's a high level of emotional intelligence and over-communication, um, high level of intentionality. And this is something that I'm not super great at and I've had to really work at it. Uh, when you're all in the same studio or in the same space and there's many of you working on the same project and there's somebody you know that's a manager, there's a hierarchy, you get a little lazy about, oh, that's unfair. It's not lazy. It's just things organically happen and you don't have to think about them. For sure. And when there are just things that have to happen in design teams and groups like critique and uh, mentoring and sharing of information, learning about new tools, uh, improving a process, all these things of healthy design organizations. And you just have to get really intentional about it and really pick apart what is not happening that when everybody is distributed, what's not happening naturally and, and schedule it or set reminders or do virtual, you know, workshops, that kind of thing. Um, other behaviors that I see, people that are very curious, uh, you know, they say good designers are, you, I don't know who says this. Maybe nobody says this. I say this. Uh, yeah. Being super curious, like asking really good questions because the, the and that's more, maybe more of a researcher aspect, but I think that every designer needs to have that ability to deeply understand something and you only get there if you're asking really good questions and you're brave enough to ask those questions. I think that's a key skill that people need to develop regardless of if you're a designer or developer. If you want to add value to the work you're doing, you need to be really open about the questions that you need to ask and be forefront with that. I think 
an ability to d deal with ambiguity. The people that I see doing pretty well come in with an agenda. So they don't, they seek out advice and they seek out critique because they know that that is the heart of good design. But they have something that they want to do uh, or accomplish and they drive towards that instead of waiting for somebody to tell them what to do, which I personally have tended to be more like I'm on the other end of the spectrum where I would love for somebody to just come in and just tell me what I'm supposed to be doing. <laughs> right? uh, and I've had to really push myself to go, well, what is the end goal here? Well, what could this look like? I'm going to ideate, but I'm going to push myself to come up with five ideas instead of just two. And, you know, really self-drive and not lean on the other people on your team to tell you what the goal is or what the idea is, or it's to bring your own stuff to the table and then negotiate with your teammates. Uh, conflict resolution. That's to everybody though. That's in everything. Uh, I would say being a huge nerd kind of pays off people that fall down rabbit holes and deeply investigate things and mess with them. They're very experimental people. They're not afraid to mess something up. Uh, they'll just, you know, put their little hands in it and just, well, I want to know how this works. So I destroyed it. <laughs> Sorry. Um, but they've learned more. Yeah. So just touching on that. People with passports, they also, it's <laughs> a lot of travel. <laughs> people willing to live on yes. nothing else but conferences and uh, pizza. Yes, exactly. Also, uh, oddly, I think there's a lot more yoga in, I was not really a yoga person before I got in like at the Ethereum space. Well, now we I'm can like, get into yoga, yoga. Uh, Burning Man and all, all those topics. Slow oh. <laughs> <laughs> like, yoga. Yeah, talking about culture and the differences. So you talked about having the need to tinker with things and really dive deep. So what are some key differences within blockchain that kind of differentiate it from normal business circumstances? And how do you kind of overcome that when you're entering the space? Well, I don't know about overcoming, but I do. I think it took me a while to realize what I was dealing with. Because I come from IBM, I kind of had some preconceptions about, you know, how design orders should work or what good looked like or what success looked like for design. But the business model at IBM was pretty different than a lot of what I see in this space, uh, which is very ambiguous, sometimes non-existent, sometimes heavily marketing-reliant uh, business models. Whereas, you know, is design part of how we make money? And I think uh, for a lot of the projects, the answer is no. So I don't think it's the only place that's like that. I, I saw that sometimes it, with uh, a lot of the developer tools in web two, 
uh, is the user experience the main reason somebody's going to pay for something? Maybe, maybe not. Um, so I think that is a big difference, first of all. The second is the speed at which the technology changes. I think there's a set amount of time that it takes somebody to learn how something works. And then there is only so much space in people's heads and space in the time that they have day to day to keep up with the rate of change. And I think it stresses some people out. Some people really love it. Some people ignore it uh, and only they'll learn about it if it's really, 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 really important. Uh, But I think, for example, the way that MetaMask was over, you know, more than two years ago versus today and how you can interact uh, in your browser or on your phone is vastly different, right? Your options are... You've got a lot more options now, and some of them are really cool. Um, so would like, you like to tell some of the listeners what MetaMask is if they're not too familiar with it? Well, I'm going to screw that up. <laughs> um, MetaMask, let me just Google it real quick. <laughs> Maybe we skip that uh, question okay, and okay, go okay. back to you. No, no, I know what MetaMask is, but I was like, <laughs> I was like well, and maybe it's, is it a wallet? No. Uh the bridge that allows you to visit the distributed web of tomorrow in your browser today. <laughs> that um, doesn't sound like you're reading it off of cue card or anything. Definitely at all. not doing okay. that. So MetaMask is a browser extension, but also uh, they now have a mobile wallet. And I don't know what the numbers are now, uh, but it is primarily what we use that consensus uh, to connect the user to the blockchain. And the interactions are very confusing still because, and I know that team works really hard uh, to understand what is needed and keep people safe and uh, make the experience as seamless as possible. But there are some just struggles that people have. And it's not just MetaMask. It is, oh, well, I seem to have this extension open, but also two modals. And oops, now the extension is lost behind this window and I can't find it. And is the transaction still going? Because I don't know, you know, where is it supposed to tell me what's happening? And maybe it stopped. Should I speed the gas up? You know, all of this kind of just extra, extra, extra work that makes just the stuff that Web2 people take for granted. Like, oh, all you have to do is just sign up, the end. Um, but also kind of nice because there's so many things that we can build without ever having to store anybody's stuff you know we don't have to worry about somebody hacking our email distribution list or our you know passwords or any of it which i think is pretty nice actually so another thing about 
the business models is that some of them are not, the intention is not to make money, right? It, especially at consensus, the mandate um, still is to support the ecosystem growth, make the developers' lives as easy as possible, help designers uh, make the best decisions, uh, you know, help teams market their stuff better. The other uh, aspect from a design perspective with the ambiguous business models, with the not being exactly who the persona that we're solving the problem for is, uh, it gets harder and harder to make assumptions. Right? So when you're getting an idea off the ground, you take a calculated risk about how many assumptions you're going to make, how many experiments you're going to run. Uh, it it gets very difficult because there's not a lot of past behavior to base assumptions on. And uh, as some other people have mentioned, it's difficult to talk to a lot of the users uh, because of the need for anonymity, right? And it's difficult to get a ton of data about usage because we respect the anonymity. So one of the biggest challenges about building design is instead of putting a ton of weight on visual design and polish and motion design and tiny little interactions and micro interactions, uh, I put my chips on the research and design thinking squares. Um, because we need to understand better. If, if anybody's going to adopt any of this, we have to deeply understand some fairly nebulous things uh, and some fairly hard to find out information. And once you get that information, you have to synthesize it and you have to prototype and you have to build your experiments uh, and, and reincorporate what you learn back in uh, to the product. So that is why I focused on getting those capabilities built up. Sometimes I feel like I was a little early with it and I should have waited until people were like, you know, oh, we need help making this business decision because we don't have this information or, oh, you know, our team is struggling to, uh, you know, make these decisions or prioritize. But I think it would have taken me a while to get a, get those people hired. So I'm kind of glad I went on and did it. Uh, but it's made a big difference. And so I think people maybe overlook those capacities. So you talked about design thinking and really honing in those resources for your different uh, teams. Do you think remote design collaboration can really work at scale? So one of the key concepts of design thinking is being in the same room and like having those face-to-face -face interactions. How do you guys translate that in a distributed manner? Well, so this is actually one of the things that I am the most excited about because if you really think about it, the times at IBM uh, where we would have a workshop, right? And everybody would be in the same place. 
you had to get food catered. You had to reserve the space. You had to make sure that you were constantly photographing the sticky notes and the sketches and all of these things, right? It was a lot of overhead for an activity. And now, uh, actually just the other day, uh, there was somebody in uh, Asia who was going to need a workshop and it was like, oh, we'll just set up the Zoom call and the mural and do it. The people that, I, I should be clear, the people that I hired uh, specialize in remote facilitation and it is an absolute art form. But there are a lot of things that you can learn from them. Uh, normal stuff like time boxing and establishing rules up front and agree, agreeing about how you're going to proceed. But using, I know this sounds like a commercial, but Zoom and then Mural together is to me, like so much more comfortable than having to go to a room and ID together. So could you pitch what Zoom and Mural is for the yes. listeners? Okay, so Zoom is your video conferencing software. But one of the things that I just found out maybe six months ago that they do, I didn't know, I did not know that this was a capability and it blows my mind. So when you're ideating in a room together and it's a large team, uh, often you break off into smaller groups, ideate on a problem, and then come back and play back your solutions to the group. And there is something very important about distilling your ideas and telling it to somebody else that helps you refine and edit. Yep. Um, it is that behavior, but it's very difficult to do on your average teleconferencing software. Uh, how do you make, do you make people just join another meeting somehow? And then how do you get them back and all this? And Zoom now lets you, the owner of the meeting, divide people up, put them in another room automatically, even play music. Oh, um, wow. <laughs> and then set a timer and then everybody comes back into the main teleconferencing room uh, when the time's up. And I just, that was mind blowing to me because it really solved a major problem uh, about groups in, you know, workshops. Uh, the other tool that, that sounds we, utopian because each time I get on a zoom call, I'm still, <laughs> it's, we're almost in 2020 and I'm still asking if people can hear me. I know, I know, <laughs> I know. <laughs> um, and, you know, it's not without, it's like glitches, but uh, I'm going to save, I can put up with the glitches for the amount of money that I save for, for sure. the same outcome. Um, the other tool that we use, although some teams have been switching over to real-time board, or I think it's I've, called Miro now. Yeah, no, I think they yeah. just recently rebranded to Miro, yeah. M-I-R-O. Mm-hmm. But we use Mural, M-U-R-A-L, uh, just because we're used to the capabilities and the features. And uh, one of the design thinking facilitators is like the power user. And so he talks to the 
nine-year-old people all the time about the features he wants, which is handy. Um, and what I love about that is it's just basically like on the surface, a sticky note whiteboard where it's just extremely easy to double click. You have a sticky note, you write whatever you're you know, you would write with a pen. Um, but then they have lots of templates, right? So your business model canvas template and your empathy map template and all of these things that when you're doing it in person, you have to physically draw with a marker on a big white piece of paper and you have to all this setup. Uh, and then your artifacts, when you have all your ideating and, you know, affinity mapping, grouping and voting, oh, Mural has timed voting as well, which is super handy. Like you can say everybody in this group gets three votes on what they think uh, the feasibility is or is going to have the most impact and bang, 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 you're done with the voting. Uh, you know, with in person, you got to find the stickers and everybody wants the, well, are my stickers red? No, I want the green ones this time. Well, green means yes and red means no. You know, it just on and on. Uh, but also the artifacts, right? We're not killing any trees. And you have them for as long as you want, right? You can, people go back in to their murals from workshops that were a few months ago. Uh, it makes it way easier to do a retro, to realign, like, hey, do you remember this is what we all decided as a group and here's why. And um, when a new person's onboarding, to the team, you know, sometimes you'll tell them, you know, here's a thing that we do, but they don't know, they don't know why or how did things get that way. But the thinking in a mural board is all there. You can see how the ideas came about. You can see, you know, people prioritize them this way. And this is why this decision was made. Um, and that also fits very well with a lot of the ideals that I see in the blockchain space around uh, respecting you know, individual autonomy and no hierarchy and um, group decision making, right? Is a lot of it's very similar to a lot of uh, design thinking work. Yeah, I think I can't speak more highly of these tools that are available to us these days, especially when you get developers, a total game changer for them because they haven't experienced being so closely tied to the design process in the past and then having the opportunity to really see what goes into it and it gets their train of thought into a more user-focused approach and it really creates a cohesive team and a better work environment moving forward. Are there any other workflows you think really help with kind of overcome the challenges with remote work? I must say Figma. You know, back when, again, in the dark ages, when Envision first came out and you were able to easily get your designs up and have people comment on them, uh, that was huge, right? Because passing around a PDF of a design uh, and then people commenting that way was such a pain. <laughs> um <laughs> But you could have these asynchronous conversations and and that was really amazing. And then, you know, sketch with a more digital focus, a more like, all right, we know that you guys are going to make web pages and product with this or applications. So we're going to make that easier. Um, but Figma, especially with the addition of these plugins, uh, I am finding 
to be, I don't know. I don't know if being in person would in any way be easier for communicating how something works or how it should look or what is the, you know, the specifications as far as the CSS or the, you know, HTML, like, I think it sometimes gets, gets to be a hindrance when you have to go physically look behind a person's shoulder to discuss things yeah. versus everyone sharing the single file. Well, and it's like all the things that we used to, I, I mean, I started getting into how could we get design files on GitHub and have when a, when a team has to be working on something, like how do we version design files? Well, who cares when you have basically Google Docs for design files, which is Figma. Right. Like you don't even yeah. really need it anymore because multiple people can work on something. And I just think that that's really like it is. It's it's incredible. I never, you know, me from 10 years ago would just be like, oh, what? You mean I don't have to like save a JPEG and then make an HTML wrapper and then load it like on my company servers and then email to ask for feedback? <laughs> You know, and testing, yeah. oh my God, user research, like, you know, some of the tools that they have now, plus, you know, Figma, it's incredible. Do you have any recommendation as far as user research tools that designers could look at? Oh, heck no. You need to talk to one of the researchers. I'm not going to say crap about that. Okay, perfect. I just know that, like, being able to record and get a transcript after seeing the user's screen and their face in the same recording is like, that's so cool. And you can get to so many more people uh, instead of having a, you know, dedicated spot in your building where you watch people through two-sided glass or no. Yeah. Two-sided glass. <laughs> like you don't have to do that anymore. And no more need for one way mirrors. I mean, maybe there is, I'm, I'm sure there is some product that needs that, but like, I just think it's so many more things are possible. So I think one of the key things for any team is the ability to have trust and clear communication. What are some resources or tools, especially working in an environment where people are living in different time zones, have different lifestyles? How do you schedule, especially in the crypto space, there's a lot of communication channels that we use, whether it's Slack, Telegram, yeah. Riot. So is there a process that you could have put in place for not only consensus, but then individual products themselves to kind of facilitate that? Sure. Um, so I was, you know, at consensus, each team does their own agreements. So it is different for all of them. But I think the key thing is just having agreements, right? How many teams have you ever been on? I have all right. I haven't been on that many teams that agrees from the outset. This is how we're going to communicate. This is how we make decisions. This is the behavior that's acceptable. This is the behavior that is not acceptable and just makes the rules out for, you know, from the outset. So everybody knows how to operate and work with each other. Um, that being said, I think for communication, I think, there are some just etiquette things, but here what has happened pretty naturally is like if it's really important and it's more uh, permanent, not ephemeral, 
information needs to be in an email. Uh, Slack is for short, uh, real-time conversation. Uh, A lot of this stuff, we have to remind people all the time that to assume the best. Don't read emotion into a text message or a Slack message that isn't there, right? But on the other hand, do your best to communicate politely and succinctly. And um, I think when things, when conflict comes up, stop communicating that way. Go straight to video call. Uh, seeing each other's faces at least <laughs> at least once a week. I know other teams, uh, my husband works remotely as well, and that team sees each other all the time, right? But I think that it is very important with a video call to see people's expressions, you know, see what their house looks like um, and how they're doing. And you can't just communicate through text all the time. And then I think, and I've seen this over the years, teams that are remote need to see each other in person. I'm going to say twice a year. The high-functioning teams uh, need like at least 24 hours twice a year. Um, and this isn't just consensus. This is many, many companies that are remote. I Over and over I see this. Uh, people get very lonely and disconnected uh, and will come back from a company retreat rejuvenated and reconnected and excited about what they're working on. Um, And so I think that is a necessary ingredient and hopefully the costs that you're saving by not providing an office and hiring much more expensive people because they are in that location that you can, you know, afford to get everybody together. Um, some people, you know, some companies do it quarterly, depending. Um, but I do think, you know, sometimes uh, the retreats are are definitely necessary. Are there some key learnings from these retreats as far as activities or things that kind of really bring the team together or some key insights that you guys have learned doing them? Yeah, and you know what? I think you've seen this too. Uh, and something that surprised me in this space uh, when we were talking earlier about like be just huge nerds, I think, I'll, from my observation, a lot of the designers at Consensus uh, are going to do the things that we were planning to do, they would do it naturally, right? So, okay, we need to ideate on this problem or we need to uh, figure out a new way to do X or let's refine this process. And uh, I think just being together and taking advantage of the physical opportunities, right? So like, I, I think I wrote about it, but I think some other people did too. The very first like design retreat that we had and how people were acting out the blockchain as a method of teaching um, with like they owe sticky notes and everybody, it was a physical thing, right? Because people learn that way. And that kind of spurred this like, Oh, is that, is this a method of prototyping and interaction like for voting and staking? 
like if we act it out, will we learn anything? And the answer is yeah. Um, and so I think the other thing though about the huge nerd part is when you get people in this space together, it just surprised me. We were in these cabins and there was a hot tub uh, kind of close to my cabin on this one retreat. And, uh, and I know you've seen this at, you know, dev cons and other, you know, web three design stuff. Uh, it's like four o'clock in the morning and jet lagged and weird. And I go out onto the like little deck of the cabin and I can hear a bunch of the designers all, you know, goofing around in the hot tub. <laughs> and I'm like, Oh, shake it, you know, get off my lawn, young people go to bed. <laughs> But like then what they're talking about is drifting over to me because I'm thinking, you know, what would a bunch of, you know, designers in a foreign country like having fun and, you know, it's four o'clock in the morning, but they're talking about like the physical implications of items on the blockchain. Like how do you get luxury goods, you know, effectively on the blockchain? Like that was what they were like four o'clock in the morning. That's what they're talking about. Like very excitedly. Um, and like just the possibilities. So I want to kind of touch on something that you mentioned really early on in the podcast it was about burnout and mental health awareness. So for teams that aren't as experienced or as fortunate to be working in situations similar to consensus, what can they do to kind of make sure that employees and their partners uh, working with them don't get to a point of burnout or aren't having mental health issues because they have been cooped inside mm. just working on this project for so long. Yeah. Well, it's a perfect storm, right? Like yeah. you get a combination of a bunch of high achievers, people that are very driven, very talented, very smart, uh, working remotely, so they're not running into their colleagues all the time. A lot of them have friends, but right, like they fall into these patterns where you don't leave the house. Um, or you're in a constant travel, constant all the time travel cycle, right? So your sleep patterns are jacked up and you're eating trash and alcohol consumption. And it's all just like this perfect storm and just, you know, sprinkling some chaos from just the industry, right? Like prices crashing and prices soaring and, you know, what's the new scam of the day and drama and who's fighting on the internet and Twitter trolls and all this kind of stuff, right? So you just get this like just giant pot of like feeling like you're hanging up from a threat. And also the possibilities, right? I think that is the biggest driver is people are so excited about what they're doing. Yeah. Uh, it, it's just too exciting. It's not nothing bad, right? Like there's no, they're not being bullied. They're not, nobody's forcing them to work like super long hours. They're doing it to themselves, right? So they can't point at another person to be like, oh, it's, I've got to get away from this person because, so you have all that. And I know that it makes me sound super mushy to be like, oh, I really care about people's mental health and, the truth is like, it is a, a fine line, right? If you have an HR person, they're going to, you can't, you can't talk about that kind of thing a ton. And yes, I do care about people, but this is a business problem. If you are not 
modeling and encouraging the behavior, healthy behaviors, right? So something like, all right, as a team, we are going to agree on what our working hours are. And then everybody's going to set their slack to sleep. Nobody's going to get pinged after hours. You have to go live your life and get away from this, right? That's simple stuff, but if you enforce it and model it for people, you can avoid a lot of the burnout from always being on and looking at your phone while you're trying to go to sleep and you can't fall asleep because you know, you're thinking about work and all these compounding problems, but people just don't perform as well. And at least from a design perspective, you know, you're thinking through a flow and it's complicated and, it, and maybe in the, the research, like users aren't really responding very well. And, and I know everybody ideates differently, but there's a, I think a lot of designers take a walk or maybe take a nap. They just kind of let it simmer in their head. And then sometimes that, like, that big idea will pop out. Uh, but when you are burned out, and you try to have a big idea, you just can't. Like your brain just doesn't work as well. And you get, it, it can tumble on into de like full on depression, right? And I'm not a mental health expert by any means, but I'm just saying it, you are saving your company money. You are increasing productivity. You are, you know, driving up the quality of what you're putting out if you are supporting the mental health and physical health choices of the people that work for you, right? And it's not going to be sure. the same for everybody. But like, to me, this is just a, when you run the numbers, you know, when people are healthier, like, obviously we know this from like, don't make people come to work when they're sick, right? Because- you think you're, you know, getting more work out of people, but when in fact you're infecting the entire office and productivity is going to go way down, right? But people aren't happy, right, when they feel like they have to. So I just think you have to check in with people. You have to be serious. You have to be intentional because it is the same. It is physical health as well, right? Yeah. Like, so I don't know. I just think that designers in this space are super prone to it because of this perfect storm of factors. And I haven't solved the problem yet, but I think a lot of it is just saying this is normal. And if you are having a hard time giving yourself permission to make boundaries, then we'll help you, right? Like we will help normalize that so that you don't feel guilty about it you know, taking the time that you need or turning off at the end of the day or not going to that eighth conference that's a 14-hour flight away, right? For sure. So you touched on having check-ins. Do you guys do any one-on-ones or mentorship? What's the process in place? Uh, okay, so I used to have one-on-ones with everybody. And then we got up to like 70 people and that didn't work anymore because <laughs> it's all I did. Um, so what we've done now is there's a few things. One is 
you know, because the designers are all on different spokes or some are on teams that are doing consulting, some are on teams that are doing um, very speculative work. Uh, you know, some are researchers, some are designers, some are front-end people, some are design thinking people. We kind of mixed them up and formulated them into pods that were convenient to their time zones of no more than four to five people. So this is their like go-to group because what uh, the feedback that I'd gotten was that yes, we were sharing our work with each other and yes, people were getting the support that they need, but there was a real lack of the deeper conversations that designers get when they're in an office explaining these more complicated concepts, right? So like if a designer doesn't really understand gas, right, when they first get in here, that's harder to do if they can't just sidle up to somebody in the lunchroom and get like, hey, can you explain this to me a little bit more? So trying to give them a pod of people that are like their go-to deeper discussion people. Um, and those teams like meet, I mean, it's, it's really up to the pod and what they decide, but I, I was like maybe once or twice a month and just kind of present to each other, get critique from their colleagues who know what they're working on, right? So they're accountable to each other. So talking about career progression as a designer, sometimes when we're working in this ecosystem, we kind of forget there's life outside of blockchain. So <laughs> what happens um, when people want to move on? Is there some sort of career progression process put into place for people to kind of upskill their weak areas or what they want to be working on? I know there's so much going on in the space that you're usually has down working on deliverables all the time, but what kind of processes can be put in place so the person is also growing with the organization? Well, that's an interesting question because it was something I was really concerned about last year or year before last and realized that these designers are on a startup and that is their organization. And so I can advise their organization to set aside money for their continued training and learning. But if their team doesn't prioritize that, you know, I, there's not a lot I can do. So Three. as a designer, how could you advocate for your team to kind of facilitate that learning? Well, so there are, there, we do have levels, right? So, uh, and, you know, salary bands that go along with that. And I would say December of last year, what we were coming up on was a way to the levels would be like internally into the organization visible. Um, so you could just see what the expectation was for a senior designer versus a lead designer, right? Like if you want to move from mid-level to senior, um, here's what it's going to take and here's what you would need to see but what the way it was going to happen was that it was going to be the advice process. So if you want to move up, it is you decide to do that, uh, and you present your case to your peers, like five peers, who will say, "Yeah, I saw your work, and uh, you're you definitely meet the criteria." So I 
agree that you should be promoted. Uh, the issue is that that's much more suited to a company with several product suites that are a little more established, right? So you can take on more junior people and train them up and you have the bandwidth to do that. And it, that is not the way that I hired. It was like, we have to get the most senior people that we can because we're going to just throw them onto this team and they're going to have to figure it out and lead. It's tough because I think a lot of designers are fairly ambitious and hold themselves to high standards and want to be moving and growing and are not really sure after a certain point what that looks like because there's moving and growing as an individual contributor and then there's moving and growing into leadership and management, right? And those are different skill sets. Uh, and it's hard in a company structured the way it is to orchestrate situations for them to get that experience. Cause I was always like, all right, well, if everything implodes, how can I make sure that all of the designers here are going to be able to quickly get a job that they like, right? Are they, are they leaving here better than we found them? Um, Cause it's difficult to get the same kinds of opportunities in organizations that are vastly different than this one, right? Like if I wanted to go to another very flat blockchain organization, I'm extremely well suited, right? I've solved lots of problems in this context, but am I well suited to fill out, you know, managerial reports and skip level this and, you know, hierarchical legacy stuff? No. So let's approach it from a more of a startup viewpoint. Essentially, a lot of the projects in consensus are startups. So how do you scale a team within that startup? Like, what are the big hires you should be making initially? What should you be looking for? A challenge with design is most people don't realize the intricacies of what designers do and what different job titles mean. So should a product designer be designing your stickers and your pitch decks or, and what that means for the people coming into the organization? You know, I go back and forth on this. I, I think designers have gotten a little precious <laughs> <laughs> because, and, and I don't know what the right answer is because do you want to be making stickers for the rest of your life when you really wanted to be, you know, leveling up the user experience of the product, right? But I would look at it in terms of what is providing the most value to your business, right? And coming to it, as a business partner. And if you say, listen, stickers have a direct correlation to how many users we get, and fuck yes, you need to be doing stickers, right? <laughs> but like, you have to understand that, right? To be able to protect, prioritize your work. That kind of flows nicely into the role designers need to play within a project or a organization. Because I feel like a lot of design education doesn't really revolve around business. Mm -hmm. So personally, I come from a business background, so I have a good context of how internal controls and business operations value different cost drivers and how that mm -hmm. plays into the business strategy. But I feel like when I interface with especially young designers, 
they really don't know how to approach conversations from a business perspective. The farthest they can get to is, hey, this is what the user wants. But how do you relate that to the business objective? And what do you think is the, the role that designers need to be playing in the larger context? I mean, I think you're absolutely right. And I think that that's like a huge asset that you have with a business background. And so recently I did this uh, six weeks course called Design Meets Business. And I got a lot of insight into how my business colleagues make decisions, right? Like, what do McKinsey and Deloitte decks look like and why? Why are they structured that way? Right? Yeah. Why are business consultants, why do they do things this way? And like, I think a lot of designers would understand, hey, you need to understand how the technology works or you cannot design for it, right? You need to be able to talk to developers and engineers in their language if you want to you know, get anywhere. And I think you're absolutely right. It is the same for your business colleagues, right? You need to know if they're doing their job, right? Are you guys, um, and this is Ryan Rossi's line, but are they using math? And if not, how can we help them to use math? But if you can't map everything that you're doing as a designer to how it supports the business, how do you make money or whatever your goals are, then you're just, you're going to be pixel pushing and needlessly polishing uh, for the rest of your career, right? Uh there are a lot of skills uh, I think that designers need and, and it's changing a lot. Uh, some things seem to be like glomming together in under like the product designer title or a you know UX UI designer or whatever, but you need you know that generalist kind of stuff, but then uh, there are a lot more specializations and I think people that can speak the language of their partners on the team who can speak to engineer, who can speak business are going to get so much farther um, and solve the actual problems and make actual measurable impact over, you know, somebody who's like, I made the buttons a deeper blue. And I don't know why. <laughs> the thing is, designers talk a lot about empathy, but I feel yeah. like they forget to apply that to their business partners mm -hmm. um, to really understand the language, like you mentioned, and the terminology. So if you're if you're in IBM, you need to know the terms that the C-suit decision makers mm -hmm. are going to be using to justify business decisions. Similarly, those might not be translatable to a different organization, but you need to be closely related to the way they interact with each other and the day-to-day -day challenges that they face. You need to be kind of aware of those challenges and tailor your, not necessarily your design to those situations because you're obviously basing your solutions on the user research and all the, the skill sets that you have, but at least the presentations and the way you approach um, justifying your rationale to something that's more palatable for them. Instead of just going, hey, we did this because this is what the user research says. I think that only can take you so far because 
regardless of how much research you do, is still a subset of the the population. And there's a lot of uh, pushback you can get in, in the boardroom or in larger meetings where they have a lot more data and a lot more statistics as far as the financials and what makes sense from a business perspective. So it's just having that education and that wherewithal to pick up those skills when you do have the opportunity. Yeah. I mean, I've, like I said, I've, this course really filled in a lot of the gaps with how like corporate business strategy works. And right. And so now I feel like when people talk about what's the ROI of design, (laughs) um, I mean, I can have an answer. Yeah. Um, Because something that I've seen over and over in this space is people will say, I want to hire a product designer and, you know, maybe not really understand what that word means and what the expectations are and what they really want is just somebody to make what they've already made prettier, right? Which is okay, but like, that's not the actual, that's a byproduct, right? But I'm just, I've never really been sure when somebody hires you as a product designer in this space and their expectation is that you're going to make things pretty and then you're like, yeah, but we have all these other problems. It's a real conflict and misalignment, right? And there's, you know, a risk that you take by pushing back and saying, if we don't, you know, fix this interaction or if we don't do these things, then we're going to have a problem. But it comes back to what we were saying earlier about the ambiguous bot- business models. Yeah. It's going to be very hard for that designer to s- put the real financial consequences um, against like what they're doing, right? It gets real subjective. And the other thing is that when we run these experiments, um, and I was thinking about earlier when you were saying about, you know, a developer asking like, how, you know, what kind of person do we hire? But you hire a developer, right? And say you're a designer and you hire a developer and you're going to know immediately if they don't know what they're doing because this stuff doesn't work, right? Yep. <laughs> like it doesn't even have to go out the door. It just doesn't work and you know it doesn't work. Uh, whereas designers, it's going to, the it not working is like not having, it's not completely not having users because that can always be a business or a product fit or product market fit mismatch. Um but the consequences of having hired the wrong designer is going to take a lot longer, right? And especially if they are good at making things look shiny, right? But the deeper, like, does this work for our users? Is this appropriate? Did we account for that step? You know, does this fit the context? Um, You won't know. For sure. (laughs) So I think personally, we could probably keep going um, on about these topics, but I don't know if the listeners have (laughs) time to keep keep up with us. Um, So I'd like to thank you for taking out the time and giving us a lot of nuggets of really valuable information. Maybe we'll have to do a follow-up episode soon to kind of (laughs) carry on, but I'd love to kind of 
bring it all back together and give you the opportunity to share one key thing that you'd want the listeners to really take away from this and move the space forward? Oh, goodness. I think that it is a challenge that's worth it. Right? If I could go back in time and go in a different direction when I was at IBM, I would not. Right? What the people in this space are trying to achieve, however lofty and sometimes far away it might seem, is worth putting your time into. Right? Nobody's going to be on their deathbed you know, going, oh, I wish I spent less time trying to make things better for people, <laughs> you know, like it's, it's a worthwhile space as a designer and, you know, for designers that tend to put way too much of themselves into their work. Uh, it's a worth it place and it's exciting and it's different and never stop learning things even when you're like please my head is full for today I don't want to learn anything new too bad <laughs> um, if you like that kind of thing come on thank you very much thank you so Sarah where can people find you if they want to learn more uh, the best place to yell at me is on Twitter star soup and the number seven Yes, I picked it when I was 13 years old, and I'm sticking with it.